Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR-130AL 70th, The Transvestite, 7th Commandment, Deuteronomy, Doi 22, Verses 5.
They declared that the first part of this law should be literally translated. There shall not be man things upon a woman. And a man shall not put on woman's clothes. Now note the difference in the Hebrew. A man's things shall not be upon a woman, nor a woman's clothes upon a man. There's a difference there. Paul and David say that things here means utensils or tools or duties. The purpose of the law, they say, and I quote, is to maintain the sanctity of that distinction of the sexes which was established by the creation of man and woman, and in relation to which Israel was not to sin. Every violation or wiping out of this distinction was unnatural, and therefore an abomination in the sight of God, unquote. W.L. Alexander, another one of the great scholars of a century ago, pointed out that it should be translated, that which pertaineth to a man, or the things that pertain to a man, or, more literally, the apparatus of a man. In other words, it means not merely clothing, but implements, tools, weapons, utensils, and duties. Another scholar of over a century ago pointed out that this law forbids the wife to rule her husband, and it forbids every perversion of the sexes from their God-given place. Thus a very interesting meaning appears. What is the meaning with respect to the woman? It is grabbing for the reality of the power and the function of the man. So the woman's defense of this law is assuming the power and the duty as well as the forms of the man's life. But with a man, this is the abdication of the form, and it's a surrender, he puts on a woman's guard as a sign of his weakness and surrender. Now let us turn from the law for a time to the present situation with respect to this law. And I shall give you now the analysis of a sociologist and anthropologist, Winnick, who, without having any Christian perspective whatsoever, nor being concerned with one way or another, is simply reporting on the contemporary tendency. According to Dr. Winnick, today we see the progressive desexualization of people. The goal, he says, is the bland man the neutral creation, the blurring of the distinction between male and female. It has gone so far that in 1964, the American Civil Liberties Union, for the first time in the history of this country, challenged the law against transvestite practices, that is, for a woman, for a man to appear in public in women's clothing. And claimed that it was an infringement of the civil liberties of the man. <laughs> Moreover, as Dr. Winnick has pointed out, transvestism on the part of men, that is, men wearing women's clothes play a role, is becoming increasingly common 
on the stage and also to the screen in movies and uh, in television. In London, unisexual foes have become a style, and to a degree also they've become a style in Scandinavia. They are being promoted and will gradually appear in other countries elsewhere. Already we do see among the hippie elements this uniman and unisex idea propagated so that sometimes it's very difficult to tell whether they are male and female. Uh, if you look at their feet, the girl's shoes will give her away, but if they're barefooted, sometimes you're up against them. <laughs> Moreover, at the same time, the stage is increasingly trying to give a picture of men that is anything but masculine. Dr. Winnick says the stage has, and I quote, created a number of men who are programmed for defeat. Unquote. Men who are born losers. While at the same time giving us increasingly aggressive women on the stage. In fact, on the stage in New York and London and elsewhere, one of the interesting facts is that increasingly the actresses are appearing who are taller than the male lead. And this is not entirely accidental. Moreover, Dr. Winnick comments, and I quote, although women characters once represented the goal of a hero's romantic quest, today we are getting the woman as Ruth, unquote. The woman as the one who mistreats the poor, helpless male. Now, Dr. Winnick's report is, I think, well-grounded. Behind all this chaos, this drive towards unisex and uniman, drive certain ideas. First of all, there is the rebellion against God's ordained order. The principle of God's creation and of his order is denied, so that man is seeking to rearrange the whole of the world and the sexes in terms of his own created mandate. I had at home a very interesting magazine with an article on mathematics today. Most of the article is beyond my comprehension because it deals with higher mathematics. And you don't have to get very high in mathematics to lose things. However, one paragraph stood out like a neon white. In this, the author stated why the new mathematics is so popular and why it is so necessary. He said the old math gives us a world that is already made. It is a world that is, as it were, there from the hand of God. And there's nothing you can do about it. But with the new math, he said, man remakes the world as his own creation. Well, if we have this temper in mathematics, should we be surprised that we have it everywhere else? Second, equality as a philosophical and religious faith is work in this matter of unity. 
steel mask. Today, the principle of equality is applied everywhere. All people are equal. Women is equal to man, and man is equal to God. As a result, there is a militant war against any difference. The bland, the neutral man is the goal. Henry Miller, of course, has said, and I've cited this before, that the world society must be a great revolution, a revolution which will wipe away all civilization, all knowledge of reading and writing, books, everything, to disappear for 200 years, during which time nothing but total anarchy and ruin will prevail. So that all knowledge of our history and civilization will disappear. Every kind of perversion will be so general that at the end of that time, men will scarcely know that they are men, and women will scarcely know that they are women. And then, he says, paradise will begin, because it will be beyond God. It will be a world of man, nation, without God and his lost. Now this, of course, is what is behind the studied violation of this law. As we can see in terms of these commentators who have studied very carefully the significance of the Hebrew text, the meaning of the law has broader references than clothing. The clothing reference is specific with respect to men and women's dress. With reference to women, it refers to broader concepts. The law strikes at the general neutralization of the sexes and the confusion of their roles. It strikes at the man's abdication of his responsibility and of the woman's presumption in assuming what is not hers. It certainly, therefore, is a law that legislates against the idea of women elders against the idea of women ministers. It certainly legislates against the idea of men being irresponsible because the idea of being a man is to bear the responsibility in a situation. I recall some years ago an elder who
was the man of the truth. Clearly in God's eyes, he faded. This law insists on a strict line of division between male and female as best and as God ordained as the means of communication and love between man and woman. The strength of each character is to be what God ordained them to be. The man to be the responsible thing. The strength and support of the castle. And the woman to be a helpmeet to him in the exercise of his responsibility and his authority. It is interesting the influence this law has had on military law. Until the 1940s at least, the military law in this country, as well as in some other countries, had strict rules which specified that a man was at all times to have only the apparatus of a man about him. Therefore, it was forbidden to a man in uniform to put the baby carriage down the street. It was unbecoming to the dignity of a man. It was forbidden for him to carry an umbrella and use it when he was in uniform. He was to be at all times the picture of military dignity and authority. These rules were good. And they usually had a healthy effect on the men because they stressed at one and the same time his masculinity and it's also at the same time that he was to be a gentleman in public. He wore a uniform that was to represent a man. And a man conducted himself like a man. The purpose of the law thus is to increase the strength and authority of men and women as men and women in their respective domains. The strength of the man is in being a man under God and the strength of the woman in being a woman under God. The definition of a transvestite thus is much broader than their reference to quote. Our modern culture very clearly, as Dr. Winnick has made clear, has a very strongly transvestite character. It is in full-fledged violation of this law because it refers the culture of perversion to the law of God. But God has called us to order so declares in call. And basic to God's order is God's distinction of man and woman, male and female, created in them. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee that Thou hast called us to that people. And hast made us male and female and given us wonderful and glorious we pray our fathers is in this day of evil when men are destroying thy God-given Thou wouldst make us strong in terms of thy law. But thou wouldst make us the means of godly reconstruction. Thou wouldst make us ever mindful, our fathers, that thy judgment is upon us. 
I'm thinking of getting engaged with you, was able to preserve England and enable England to grow strong. So, even though she was highly masculinized in other respects, her greatness was in this feminine trick. On the other hand, <laughs> Maria Theresa is one of the most wonderful figures in all history. And I think it's fitting that the most popular coin in all history, the Maria Theresa collar, is her coin. Uh, actually minted in her honor by her son in her last day. Maria Theresa came to the throne of the Austrian-Hungarian Empire when all of Europe expected it to fall apart. And here she was, just a slip of a girl. And yet she was thoroughly womanly, remarkably so. She was by right the empress of the Holy Roman Empire as well as of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. She never took the title. She never did. She said, the title belongs to a man. Let my son have it when he comes to the throne. But it's not uh, right for a woman to pretend to that title. She always had around her uh, level-headed men as counselors. She always did the final deciding. But at all times, she made every man around her know that she was treating his opinions with respect. And she was not presuming that she knew it all. As a result, she built up a loyalty that is unparalleled in history. Everyone loved her. They recognized the godly character of the woman her very, very real humility, and the fact that she understood uh, the details of things, the nuances of things. So she became quite a remarkable ruler. Now, there are differences between men and women. Women are personal. This is their greatness. This is why they can cope with family situations and personal things. Because they are interested in the very personal thing and they view every problem from the personal perspective. What's it doing to me or to my husband or to my children? They put it in personal terms. Whereas what does a man do? He tries to put it in abstract terms. Now let's look at this objectively. That's his attitude. <laughs> well, you see, this is why they need each other, and this is why you cannot read history properly, except in terms of male and female, and this is why in a godly society, the women will have a very important role to play because the balance is needed. Men become too impersonal. They're trying to abstract everything. But uh, not the woman. Now, uh, it's not surprising that most sociologists are men, and the women who do are priests. Because what does a sociologist do? He tries to depersonalize everything. If his child is misbehaving or something, he's trying to find abstract, objective reasons for all of this. What does the woman do? She wails it. Because she thinks he is out of line. Not abstract social cause. Now, I'm stressing the point there, but this is the difference between male and female. 
One is personal, the other tends to be abstract in general. And both are needed in the world. Yes. Runs the farm, how she runs the business, 
manages the household, handles her husband's business, so he can be an elder sitting in the gate, that is, a city councilman. In other words, it does not say the woman uh, sits in a corner and knits. What it says is that the woman does not take over the man's responsibilities, that is, usurp them. But the woman is presented in Scripture as a very strong personality. Yes. Yeah. Unmarried man would have no vote. 
because he's not the head of the hospital. The bachelor would not be entitled to a vote. But meanwhile, the woman should vote in order to help nullify a great deal of evil that uh, is prevailing.
he uh, is very prone to alcoholism. Now, this question was asked this morning, and then a woman said yes, but when I was in Arizona, I saw this Indian uh, go into an ice cream parlor and get an ice cream cone while his wife sat outside and uh, didn't get one. And I said, yes, I can believe that, but I'll tell you something more. The chances are she gave him the money and sent him in to treat himself. Yes. Because he is the biggest baby she has. And uh, they uh, indulge their men. They, the men are very often abusive and all and beat them up, but the woman also provides them with a good deal of money for their drinking and uh, for their ice cream cone and so on. So that uh, doesn't represent masculine authority that he had an ice cream cone while he did Yes. It is over and over again used so in Scripture. And as a matter of fact, the old Puritan tradition was not only to call fellow members of brother so-and-so and sister so-and-so, but also uh, the ministers were called fathers. This is not Catholic usage. It's modern among the Catholics. After the Civil War, as I pointed out some months ago, somehow this twist came around. The Catholic term for a priest was mister, like Don Camilo, Don Pablo. Don means mister. This is the way they address the priest. But the Protestants called the minister. Yes. But the Protestants always spoke of the minister as father, and the little kids would speak of the older man as uh, Father Jones, any older man. So that, uh, or uh, if they were quite familiar, family friends, for example, Rand would be addressed by uh, the other youngsters in the group as Father Rand. So that all the men by the children would be called father, and the adults would call the minister father. You'll find this in the uh, American Protestant and Puritan tradition up to the Civil War, and it began to die out after the Civil War, and somehow Roman Catholic and Protestant customs switched. Um, yes. Oh, yes. Church, brother uh, Mary and uh, Sister Paul 
and Father uh, Marple, and so on. It was a different kind of thing. It was a different context. So that uh, even in Calvin, uh, you find uh, him uh, speaking of this verse in Matthew, where it says, Call no man, Father, say God only. He says, This does not refer to the usage in the church by brethren in the Lord who are one family. So uh, Calvin specifically favored it. Now, this came as a shock to me when I ran across this in Calvin a while back, and so I started to study up on this. So I uh, changed my perspective here because I realized Calvin was right this book. I, I don't think I feel comfortable, frankly. Yes. The Russian Orthodox faith and the Greek Orthodox they're very close to one another, was the heresy at certain serious points. For one thing, they did not believe in the procession of the Holy Ghost from the Father and the Son. They gave the Son a subordinate position, and subordination, as soon as we saw in our studies of the Creed and the Council, leads to a rather humanistic faith. Second, uh, the Orthodox churches, and especially the Russian Orthodox Church, held to the doctrine of kenosis, K-E-N-O-S-I-S. And the doctrine of kenosis is a very dangerous one. The idea was that when Christ became incarnate, he emptied himself of his divinity so that he was completely man, even though he was very God of very God. So that the way of kenosis the Russians emphasized for all believers. You, as it were, surrendered all authority and all power. You became uh, a pilgrim, as it were. Uh, utter humility. Well, this is a perversion because the Christian is to use, we shall see in a few weeks, power under God. And to deny that power is Christian and to say that Christ proved himself to be uh, truly the Son of God by denying his Godhead and by emptying himself of his power, and that we are to renounce all power and so on and so forth, it is to pervert the meaning of humility and the meaning of meekness. We shall be coming to this, as I say very soon, so I don't want to go into too heavily. But it did mean that to a great extent, to become a Christian, in Russian Orthodoxy, it was almost surrender any influence you might have through any position you have. So the doctrine of kenosis was a very, very uh, deadly doctrine. The idea of a truly holy man was of someone who, having accepted the faith, just wandered around witnessing. And of course, some people in Protestantism tend to have that idea. It meant forsaking your responsibility just to make a witness. Yes. No, kenosis refers.
break this doctrine of emptying yourself. Yes. A lot of the churches in Orthodoxy, uh, Eastern Orthodoxy, are named not after persons, but doctrines. For example, the Church of St. Sophia, uh, which is in Constantinople, is not named after someone uh, named Sophia, but after uh, wisdom. Sophia means wisdom, so it's the Church of Holy Wisdom. That's a literal translation. So uh, this is the deceptive thing. Eastern Orthodoxy does have churches named after saints, but a lot of the names have reference to uh, doctrine. The Church of the Holy Wisdom, the Church of Kenosis, apparently. Of course, in what we are. 
by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by Christrules.com.